Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Okay, before I start, I'm going to um, repeat something, for, and I'll probably be doing this for a little while, uh, simply because I think it needs to be made abundantly clear. Somewhere right around Christmas, I received a um, amount of information from Barna, and, um, and Megan gave me something from um, the Southern Baptist Research Group, too. And I hadn't seen it, and, but Barna Research is telling us that uh, when, and it's a three-year program, when there, I don't know how many, two, three hundred thousand people are supposed to be interviewed, and, but a preliminary report came out after less than a year, when, and, the, and the research was, why do people get started into drugs? Because last year, 2018, 55,000 American people died of drug overdoses. And the question was, in what's called a root cause analysis, and, and, and in that root cause analysis, the root cause of why people get started in the drugs to start with. That was this, what they're trying to find out. And to save time and keep them going into a lot of detail, it, it simply came out to this, that the number one reason, now there were, there were several reasons who you run around with, there were several reasons, but the number one reason, way above everything else, was unhealthy or poor relationships. And, uh, and so now the question is, if that is the cause, the root cause of why people move into drugs, what then causes is the root cause of unhealthy relationships? Because you just keep digging until you get... And, and that was really overwhelming, overwhelming, uh, reason was um, it, it was directly related to iPhones and iPads and so on and so forth where children are given those things from the time that they can sit up to entertain, for entertainment. And they have a lot of good purposes. We're not saying that they should all be thrown away, but we are saying that we need to be aware of the fact that they retard healthy relationships developing among people. And if that is true, then somewhere along the line, we adults are going to have to take responsibility for trying to fix that. Because if we're right, if we have given them all, and, and you know, it was funny. It, it, it was funny, but it, it was irritating too. At Christmas time, uh, we were, Alice Kay had the family all down there to feed them on the second floor down where we live. And, and, um, and so before we had our prayer, we had to say, okay, all telephones go off, blah, 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 get them out of the way. Because we're not going to pray, and you can't eat till we pray, put them up. And so the, we went ahead, and they did whatever, stuck them in pocketbooks or whatever they did with them. We ate our supper, 
And I looked back in the back, and there were a couple of names that if I said you all would know them really well, all of them in my family. And they had gotten out one of those daggone uh, iPhones, and they were playing Bible trivia, thinking that if they were talking about the Bible, I wouldn't say anything. And I volunteered to baptize their iPad or iPhone in the toilet. It is, you know, we've got to face up to some things that that will probably make our youngsters uncomfortable, maybe make you uncomfortable too. But if it's the truth, it's the truth. Now, understand, the data will not be complete for another little over two years. And as I get the information, I'll share it with you. Um, but we're talking about facts. We're not talking about opinions. We're talking about facts. And, and they're bringing those to your opinion. And here's what I'm suggesting. If there's a better idea, I'm certainly open to it. But I, I think that every family should commit to having one meal together with all of us at the table at one time with no television, no iPhone, no iPad, no anything. For, and maybe if they, if they do homework, maybe it's until, even though sometimes some homework, there is, there is assigned use of um, iPads or whatever information that you get from there. Uh, but I think we've got to take some responsibility and not use them just for babysitting, but to, to realize that there is a downside to it as well as a benefit for them. But that, I'm going to continue to put that stuff out there for you because I think that, uh, that we've got to realize we have a crisis with our young people. The, the drug things with 55,000 dying last year of overdoses. And then, and then the information that seven or eight out of ten of the children raised in church, in typical churches, that believe the Bible will leave the faith if they go to college unless they go to a Christian school. Facts. Uncomfortable facts. But we need to be aware of them. So, with that said, let's uh, look at the text that's been assigned to us uh, from the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark, this third chapter... Uh, is what was assigned here, the amount of material, is impossible to, to, to do it justice in the amount of time that we have. But we'll try to make it as clear as we can. And what we're trying to do is to get you acquainted with the Scripture to the extent that you could actually explain it to somebody else if they ask you. That's, that's the, the ultimate desire. So I'm going to read the opening passage here, and then we'll comment on it and go from there. Jesus went, this is starting at verse 13 of chapter 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside. I would circle that mountainside. We're going to talk about that. And called to him those he wanted. I would also circle the word called. Because it has a specific meaning that isn't clear in English. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, and we'll comment on different ones of them a little later on. 
Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and to them he gave the, the name of sons of thunder, because another word I can't pronounce. There was Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now that's as far as we're going to go for a little bit. And we're going to talk about mountains for a minute. It said he went up onto a mountain. Uh, some of the translations say high places, but actually the Greek word is the, is the, is the word for mountain. And believe it or not, there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, I'm sorry, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there are high hills. That's where Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and they jumped into the sea. But on the, on the west side, not too far from the city of Tiberias, the largest city around the Sea of Galilee, there is a hill uh, that uh, is right out in the middle of nowhere. It's called Mount Tabor. And uh, we'll be talking about that. The reason it says that he went up, you remember, the church is to be the new Israel. It's, it's actually a replacement for Israel. And so a lot of the things that, Israel, that was in the history of Israel, they kind of repeated to show that, uh, that the consistency of God in developing his people. And this, on top of mountains, there were a lot of significant events and if you look inside your bulletin, if you haven't looked yet, there's a little quiz there on mountains. And, and I think the ones that I put in there are so uh, significant to understanding the Bible. Because on mountains, there were a lot of really important things that happened. Significant, and, and why? I don't know why God, and I don't know why the pagans chose high places. Maybe they thought they were closer to heaven. I don't know what the reason is, but a lot of significant spiritual and biblical things took place on, on the mountaintops. So we've purposely inserted a little quiz there to help you get to know these things so that as we move on, because, uh, because uh, it, it'll help you understand. And the first one will be a little difficult for you unless you've gone through them and, and through the process of elimination because it is, it is something you will see on the news if you ever see the term the Mount of Olives. You will see a specific thing there now. On top of the Mount of Olives today, there's an Arab hotel. At the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. But in between, let's, what, what, do, what would be the answer to what is there on the Mount of Olives today? If you've been there with me sometime, you know. Does anybody know what's there? That's what I figured. Who said that? Ralph's been there. <laughs> it is a big old Jewish cemetery. That's what's there today. It is a great big... And the people with money in Israel like to bury their, their uh, loved ones on the, on the Mount of Olives. Okay, let's go to number two, Mount Nebo. What happened on Mount Nebo? You really ought to know that because if you have read... Um, the Old Testament at all. And see, last year you're supposed to read through your Bible, so you really ought to know that. 
Does anybody know what took place on Mount Nebo? Actually, I preached in a little church called uh, Nebo, Kentucky, back when I was in graduate school at Vanderbilt. It's just about 9 or 10 miles west of Madisonville. What took place on Mount Nebo? If you were here last night, you're not allowed to answer. Yes, sir. Mount Nebo is where Moses is buried. He died there. There's Mount Pisgah and Mount Nebo. They're close together across from the, on the east side of the Jordan River and what's, uh, what's today Jordan. And, and, and does anybody know where Moses was buried? The answer is no, because the angels buried him. Why? So they wouldn't carry his old dead body around with them forever because he was held in such esteem. Okay, what's the next one? This is so easy that it's sickening. Mount Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula or the Sinai Mountain Range. What took place on Mount Horeb? I've said it enough that you ought to know. What is it? No. Uh-uh. Mount Horeb. What is it? I'll give you a hint. That's it. You're a good girl. That's where the Ten Commandments took place. Actually, we've been there, uh, and several people from here at church actually went up. I played sick and stayed in bed, and, uh, and, and, uh, but they, you leave at midnight when you're there in order to get to the top of Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the peak in Mount Sinai. The Sinai Mountains are there, and the Mount Horeb is the peak where Moses received the law. And, uh, and that's really good. Okay. Mount Tabor, I just mentioned. Mount Tabor. What would have taken place there? This is just uh, a, a little piece east, or, or rather west, I'm sorry, of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And so it would have been something to do with Jesus. And we just read the text. He went into a high place. Probably, this is pro- there's only two possibilities, and Mount Tabor is probably the place where Jesus was transfigured. Probably the place. The other possibility is up uh, on the, at, uh, up on the uh, Syrian border, there's the highest peak in all of Israel it's about 10,000 feet high and there's usually snow on top of it and so there's some scholars that say because it was so bright there according to the scriptures that maybe it was there but uh, I I doubt it but I don't know okay Mount Gilboa Old Testament what took place on and Mount Gilboa is another one of those areas where it's not a peak, but it's several high places all put together, and that area is called Mount Gilboa, just south of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, a short distance. I'll give you a hint. Who died there? Saul and his son Jonathan were killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Good for you. This next one everybody should know because it's so stinking easy. Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. What took place on Mount One of the most fascinating characters in all the Old Testament. What took place there? Hey, you're not going to go to hell just for being wrong in case you miss it. What? <laughs> Speak up. What do you think it is? 
Elijah with the prophets of Baal that took place. And, and, and if you go to the clear up the coast of Israel on the west side, uh, the third, there's, that's where Mount Carmel is. We've been there lots of times. And nearly all of these places have a, uh, uh, the Catholic Church has put, uh, years and years ago, put a, uh, a building or a convent or something or there in each one of them. The last one is a little more interesting because it's not mentioned in the Bible. But you, there's a movie out about it, Masada, Masada. What took place on Masada? Now, you're going to find out that a lot of this stuff I'm talking about here has a direct relationship to the text that we read, this being one of them. Because what took place at Masada? What was there? It was the what? By a process of elimination, you got to have this one, surely to goodness. What is it? Joyce, what did you say? It's the massacre of the Sicarius. All right, or, or you see the word zealot there out from it. Now then, that being the case, you're going to, the apostles quiz, you're going to have to do on your own. We're not going to take time for that. Let's go back through the text again now. Went to a high place that was, that was probably uh, around the Sea of Galilee there somewhere. And it is said then that if you, if you follow your sermon outline now, the word here that where he says he called them out and appointed, that word for calling is the same word that is used in the legal uh, world if you were to, uh, to be summoned to serve on a uh, petit com- uh, jury or something like that. It's the same word. He didn't ask their opinion. He summons them. You see, disciples in the New Testament, disciples could choose their rabbi to follow. The apostles, however, were not given a choice. He summons them and said, you're it. And you go with me from now on. And he, they hung with him for about three years. And, um, and that was their training. And, and the three years is kind of interesting because today, even yet today, there are ramifications from that three-year training period for the apostles. The word apostle comes from two Greek words, apo from, stelo, sin. So there he was going to send them to do what? To preach and to drive out demons. We'll talk about that in just a second. The word, uh, so he, he, has, he has summons them to follow him. Today, if you get your, when I was in school, it was called a Bachelor of Divinity. It's a three-year program uh, after you get your bachelor's degree in college. Today, it's called a Master of Theology, or it's a, but it's a, three-year, it's a three-year program. And the reason it's a three-year program is it goes all the way back to the three years that the apostles spent with Jesus in, the, in their development and training so that they would be there when... Uh, when Jesus went back to heaven. So he gave them the message to preach. Now listen to me because this next part, the church has kind of messed up with the best of intentions, and you can understand why. Jesus said, go proclaim. The word peruxo for preach is, to pro- is a proclamation. In the church today, 
for some reason or other, I don't know how this developed, but over a period of time, the church would rather hear somebody give their testimony than to hear the proclamation of the gospel. But the two aren't the same. The proclamation, what, do they, what are they to proclaim? They are to proclaim the kingdom of God is now active and in your presence. That was the message. That's what you're to preach. And that not only is the, for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the Jews said, God is silent. Wonder what's going on. And now the message that Jesus comes is God is now active in Israel. And you are to tell them that not only is the kingdom of God to be proclaimed, but the king is here. And they were to proclaim that wherever they went. And in order to show that it was the power of God was greater than the power of evil, they were to cast out demons. And so he, he selects this group of people. He selects, first of all, and always at the head of all the lists mentioned in the New Testament, even though this was a book written by Mark, it was dictated by Peter. And for some reason or that humble fellow put his name at the top of every list. So he starts off, and Jesus renames several of these people. Whether it was a nickname or not, I don't really know, but uh, he, his name was Simon. And Simon then was called Petros, or in English, Peter. Now, the interesting thing about that is there are two Greek words, and the word Petros means rock. But it means the kind of a rock that you can skip across the creek, or you can skip across the pond, if you've ever done that as a kid. The two words for rock, one means a skip rock, and that was Peter, because he was so not dependable, hot again, cold again. He was, you know, he would deny Jesus and then he'd say he'd die for him. I mean, he was just all over the map. The other word means bedrock, that which you can build upon. And that is the word that always referred to Jesus. He was the bedrock on which the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers were to be built into the developing of a spiritual building called the church. Now, that's, that's Simon. Then there were James and, and John, the sons of Zebedee, that he called the sons of thunder. In northern Kentucky, or probably even better, Sauda County tem, uh, terminology, it simply means loudmouth. These two guys were loudmouths. I, I know you're too nice people to ever call anybody a loudmouth, but that we that has happened, and that's that's why he called them that. And um, and I guess they had to live with it. Sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew was a tax collector. There wasn't anybody that was any more hated than tax collectors. Whether you were tax, collecting taxes for Israel or you were collecting them uh, for Rome, probably he was a, a, a collecting them for, for, for Israel. But I'm not certain of that. Okay, because it doesn't say. James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute. There was a political group, especially in Galilee, whose very existence was to try to throw Rome out of Israel. These, that the, the committee, I mean, the, the, uh, the political group was called the Zealots. 
Simon was a part of that. The worst of the zealots were the Sakari that we mentioned in Masada. They were called that because they carried a dagger that had a kind of a curve to it. And that was the Sakara is the name of that dagger. They, they were actually called the dagger people. And, and they, were, they were so bad that the people in Jerusalem chased them out of Jerusalem and they went down to Masada, which is just a little west of the, right on the edge of the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea from the top of Masada really easy. We've been there many times. And the 10th Legion, when Rome finally conquered Israel, got tired of, their, of what the zealots were doing, they actually went down to, under Titus, uh, General Titus, they went with the 10th Legion. They built a ramp all the way up to the top of, the, of Masada. And the night before they were to go over the wall, the people all committed suicide. Only three of them remained to tell the story. They said, we would rather die of our own hand than to submit to Rome. And so that's, that's, was, that was what took place at Masada. And that's who the zealots were. Then you have Judas Iscariot. Judas, who, who was the, the betrayer of Jesus. And the other one up there that I, meant, that I should have probably mentioned and didn't is Thomas, of course, who was the doubter. But Judas Iscariot, what does Iscariot mean? We don't really know, but we think, we think it is the town where he came from. And, um, and so that's why, and the name of the town today is called Kerioth. And that's why we put that down in, in, when you do your work out your little quiz yourself. Now, this is, a, a, this is all a part of trying to understand who these people are because you're going to run into them again as the story, uh, as Peter related to uh, young Mark, continues. Now, Jesus gives them authority to preach, to proclaim. And, and so when you, you look at the Scripture... Did you ever wonder when he's casting out demons why he would say, okay, but don't tell anybody? Because you remember the demon would cry out, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. We know you're the, they, they knew who you were. But why did he say, keep your mouth shut, zip it? This had to do with Jesus' assignment from the heavenly father when he came to earth. He was, one of the things that he was to do was to establish the church. When you look at Matthew 16, 18, he says to Peter, and Matthew records it, you are Peter, you're Petros, the skip rock, and upon the fact that you have admitted that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. Matthew 16, 18. So he had to build the church, and he started with the selection of the apostles, and then in time, because in, in, the third, in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul said the church was to be built on Jesus, and then, then there were the apostles, and from the apostles were prophets, or, or, and on top of that would become evangelists and then pastor teachers. Jesus had to have time to build the church to establish the church before he died and went back to heaven. And so timing was the issue here. And Satan was trying to screw up God's timing by announcing who he was so that 
the Romans would kill him before he could establish the church that he promised in Matthew 16. 8. Timing is important in about anything. So, because by now you need a little break from all this stuff I've been po- poking at you. So, Ralph found this little clip, so I want to share it with you to show you how important timing is. This morning, uh, we have accepted Christ as his Savior and as his Lord, and he will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. (laughs) And so, Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Go, Jordan. Timing is important, you see. (laughs) Yeah, all right. So Jesus had an agenda that he had been given to him by the Father, and he mentions this in a prayer in in John 16 and 17. And his agenda was to establish the church and in the meantime train his successors so that they carry on his work of establishing the kingdom of God through the church here on earth, even as it is in heaven. And he said, I'm going to give to you authority. Now, we need to talk about authority for a minute because we live in a culture that just despises any kind of authority. But Jesus said, I'm going to give you the authority both to preach and to cast out demons. That's the authority of the church. Now, we've messed that up a little bit through the centuries because the Catholic Church actually has, (coughs) excuse me, four or five of, uh, of authoritarian uh, things of authority. They have a Bible just like you and I have. Only in most of their Bibles, they also include between uh, Malachi and Matthew a thing called the Apocrypha, which are a few historical books about the Maccabees and some other books. It's worth reading just so you know it. And then they not only have that, but they have church dogma because they believe that the church is infallible. The Bible is infallible. The church is infallible. And so uh, they have the church law and the dogma, which means the doctrines or the teaching of the church. They also have tradition. Matthew mentioned this. Tradition is equal with the Bible. It's equal with church law. So you have tradition. And so they have various sources of authority, and they also have the papacy. Now, if any of these, the Bible and tradition, let's say the Bible and traditions are at loggerheads, the, the Pope then speaks ex cathedra, which is a fancy way of saying as the head of the church, and he determines what it's going to be because he's infallible too. So that, and we've messed that up. And what I'm saying is the divisions in the church today are so obvious because there's not any, no one just simply recognizes one central authority. That one central authority has to be this. It can only just be the Bible. And, 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 and so the church developed creeds. And they said, in my opinion, we don't need creeds. Throw them in the trash. Because they were developed at a time when nobody could read and write and people could memorize the creeds. We've got the Bible. Use it. It is the single authority. 
Will there, and even then there will be issues there where we differ, but we ought to be able to sit down and talk about it. See, the, the Baptist church has, has an addition. The Methodist church and the church of Nazarene has an addition. The, the discipline uh, that John Wesley put out, you have, uh, everybody has the Bible plus something else. And I'm advocating eliminate all the something else and just use the Bible. Then we sit down, and our, and our differences, let's admit that we can have differences, but they aren't worth fighting over if you believe that the Bible is true. Then we sit down, and we talk about it, and pray about it, and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into unity. And that's, it, we're never going to have unity until there's only one single source of authority, and that has to be the Bible. And so that's the authority that, that, um, that when we mention that today. Now, it is obvious here that timing is important. And I gave you two passages of Scripture so that you would see that in the life of Jesus. He actually mentioned timing is important. If you look carefully at the 7th chapter, verse 6 in the Gospel of John, he simply says, hey, my timing is not yet. Quit pushing the issue. My timing is not yet. It's, I'm not ready to die on the cross. I'm not ready to go back. I'm not ready yet. But then when you get over in, in the 26th chapter of Matthew, verse 18, when he tells the apostles, now go and get this donkey from a ride into Jerusalem and died. He says, because my time is near. And that what he was really talking about is when he completed his assignment by dying on the cross and being resurrected so he could go back to heaven. And between his advent, he was to establish all, everything necessary for the establishment of the church. Then he would take care of our sin problem. And then he would send back to heaven and leave his representatives here to further his cause. And that's why the timing is such a big issue. He faced opposition from day one. Even his own family. Now, I say, what was his family? The Bible makes it very clear. He had brothers and sisters from Mary. And, and the, now, uh, the, some of the people in the history of the church say, no, they, they weren't Mary's children. They were Joseph's children before he married Mary. But there's no evidence of that at all. They, these, are probably, they, these, these brothers and sisters came, and, and, they were, and they told the people, we've got to get him and take him back home to Nazareth because, you know, he's out of his mind. My mother actually told me I was out of my mind for going into the ministry. She said, you know how we treat our preachers. Every five years, we kick them out of town. We run them away thinking our problems will go with him. And if you think you're going to have anything better than that, I think you're crazy. She was right. I was a little out of my mind, but that's the way it went. Now, this Jesus, when he was preaching, became so very, very popular that it was very obvious that his opponents, why did he have opposition from people other than his family? Because he was saying and preaching that the kingdom of God is something different from what the, the Old Testament law. He's saying, We're, this is a new thing. This is totally new. This is not Israel being reformed. This is a new thing called the church. Because you don't have to become a Jew in order to be part of the kingdom of God. Whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, if you accept Jesus, 
as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then you're added to the church by God, and you're one in Jesus Christ, whether you're, whatever your background may be. And so he's saying, and they, so they sing, oh my, then what is going to happen to the law and the prophets? The New Testament says that the law and the prophets were until John, meaning John the Baptist. What, what was that meaning? John the Baptist's job was to introduce Jesus, even though they were cousins in the flesh. Because do you remember when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John said, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <coughs> so, the, the, they realized, he, he let this be known, and they realized that the, that the Torah, the Old Testament law, was no longer binding, and that's what they worshipped. Whenever they went into a synagogue, they had a place there where they pulled out the law and they read it, and you'll see that in time and time again before we finish reading here and, and preaching through the book of Mark. And, and so they began, and they were so frightened that they sent to Jerusalem to have the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who were trained in the law, to come up and oppose him to see if they could get him. And when they failed to do that, they got together with the Herodians who were politicians, and they said, how are we going to kill him? This started early on started early on and so his opposition was really serious and uh, and 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 he finally he answers that opposition now we, i've got to move quickly here so we'll start reading at verse 20 then jesus entered a house and that was probably in capernaum and maybe it was house of peter because it's that's been restored there and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed of the devil. Beelzebub is the prince of the devils. He's, the, he's over all of them. He's the superintendent of the devils. And, and Jesus answered that. And there's only one verse here I'm going to bring to you because it has historical value to us as Americans. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. And his answer was, how can Satan, if I'm Satan, how can I drive out demons? Demons don't drive out demons. If the kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And that's the verse that, you, that has significance to all of us historically. When Abraham Lincoln, that great Kentuckian, when he was saying, hey, look, we cannot allow the South to secede, to secede from the Union. We have to keep the Union together. The Northern forces were referred to as the Union. The Southern were the rebels. He was saying, we have to maintain the Union. We have to maintain the Union. And the verse of Scripture that he used was this one. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so President Lincoln used that just like because he's, he, he read his Bible. Wasn't accused of being a, a, an ardent church going, but he certainly did know his Bible. And there's another passage here that we have to talk, talk about and, uh, because it is a question that's raised all of the time. Jesus is saying, those of you who oppose me, your sin can be forgiven. But... If you oppose the Holy Spirit, 
you cannot be forgiven. Why did he say that? This is called the, the only sin that can't be forgiven. It's called in, um, in uh, what, verse 29, it's called an eternal sin. Because he says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. He's talking about those who spoke against him. But, he says, whoever blasphemes or speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. Speaking against the Holy Spirit, he's not talking, and I have to check this to make sure I'm right. I think I am, but I've got to check with Dr. Girdwood. He's my, uh, he's my uh, genius that, uh, that helps me with if, if I'm a little concerned about the text. I'm thinking, but I'll let you know in time, he's not saying if at one time you oppose the Holy Spirit. He's really saying if you died having with, uh, opposing the Holy Spirit as an ongoing thing. You have never let the Holy Spirit come into your life. For you see, salvation is what? Repenting of your sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. You cannot be saved without having received the Holy Spirit. That's just the way it is. And so he's saying if you resist that Holy Spirit coming into your life, you've committed a, a sin that can't be pardoned. And so people have talked about the unforgivable sin. And they have, the mistake they have made, in my opinion, is at one time in their life they have resisted the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, well, there's no, no hope for me. He's not talking about He's talking about that taking place until you die. And if you die without having received the Holy Spirit, you have no hope of salvation, no matter what. But all the other things can be forgiven. Now then, and then at the end here, Jesus redefines, and Ralph, if you guys want to head on up this way, it's okay. He says this, Then Jesus' mother and, father arri mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside the house, this is where they couldn't eat because they were crowded, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus asked them the question, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. He redefined the family in this way. He was saying, you don't get to heaven because you were born from a man and a woman. You get to heaven when God becomes your father. And he is your father. And you then, and you can't even join his family. And unfortunately, through the years, the church has made the mistake of saying it's joining the church that makes the difference. Well, there's nothing wrong with joining the church, but if you haven't been born again to join the church, is a waste of time. Bidding your name on a church roll without having God added you to his church is a waste of time. So he is saying the only way that you can get into God's family is that he adopts you into his family. You're adopted children, and when you go over to the 8th chapter of the book of, of the book of Romans, he spends a lot, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about this. He talks about the spirit of adoption and so on. Here's the way he said it. Wherefore, brothers, 
we have an obligation. This is starting at verse 12 in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. We have an obligation, but it's not to our sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to your sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you have put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, get this, here's the big issue, are the sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit that you might be a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship. And by, and by Him we cry, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. So he was saying, when you're born again, you're added to God's family, and you become his child by adoption. And once you are adopted, he says, keep on reading, now if we're children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So we, receive, so we are included in God's will just like Jesus is, and whatever he inherits, we get when we are born again into the family of God. Now, I'll ask you a question, and I'll let Ralph sing. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, Ralph, sing. I'm tired anyway. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood, joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, form a part of the family, the family of God. You will notice we say brother and sister round here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in the victory in this family so dear. Oh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain cleansed by his blood join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side form a part of the family the family of God from the door of the orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing, from rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, 
but praise God I belong. Oh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Join us with Jesus as we travel this on form a part of the family oh the family of God yes I'm a part of the family the family of See, that means we're brothers. Amen. He just got a better tan than me. Yes, that's all that is. Lord, I ask you to bless these folks who have, some of them struggled to get here this morning. Thank you for their faithfulness. Bless them with your oversight to give them a safe trip home. And we thank you, Father, for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, that you've adopted into your family and that we can, without bragging, say, Thank God I'm a part of the family of God. So dismiss us, we pray, Father, with your richest blessing, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.